Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to Episode 7, Call of the Restoration of Diplomatic Relations Between the UK and Argentina. Yes, really. Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Irons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Camp where we camp. Get refused credit where we get refused credit. And today, I'm going to be talking about Season 1, Episode 7, The Call of The Simpsons. And I'm going to be talking about the UK and Argentina formally restoring their diplomatic relations, which happened on the 16th of February 1990, just two days before Call of the Simpsons was first aired. But really, my story is more about why they needed to restore diplomatic relations in the first place. So stay tuned for that. Excellent. And thank you very much for covering up my mistake there of not saying that The Call of the Simpsons was originally aired on February the 18th, 1990. Well, there we are. Excellent. And with all that wrapped up in a neat bow, I'm now going to do a shameless plug. I was on uh, my friend uh, Tim Worthington's podcast, which is called Looks Unfamiliar, last week. It's episode 24, and you should all tune in if you get a chance. Yep, I've heard it. It, it, It's a a wonderful trip through nostalgia, although nostalgia that I haven't heard about half of, so... uh, But still enjoyable. If you ever wanted to hear about Transformers that don't transform, and the bad Nirvana could have been, then uh, tune in. Yep, excellent. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, our email address is podcast at retrospecticus.org, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter. We are at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore. Because we certainly can't. So, let's get straight into it. Call of the Simpsons. Boom, let's go. So, production number 7G09. Ooh, there was a bit of a jump there. Mm. I did say it was going to get interesting. Yeah. And it has, to me, (laughs) anyway. But uh, we will return to this in a later episode. US viewership, so the Nielsen rating was 14.6, which was 22% of the audience share, and it was the third highest rated show of the day. Well, that's taken a jump. Uh, I think previously I've been talking about the weekly ratings. Okay. I'll be honest with you, I'm completely out of my depth with uh, <laughs> US US ratings. Okay. So uh, I know that Nielsen ratings don't necessarily correlate to the number of eyes on the screen. Okay. Uh, and this this definitely just told me what it was for the day rather than the week. So apologies, everyone. Um, <laughs> I will attempt to do a better job in the future. Okay, fair enough. The UK number one. It's still nothing compares to you by Sinead O'Connor. Oh, this was at a time when... If something was number one and it was good, it would be number one for a long time. Absolutely. Um, these, these days I have no idea what's in the charts, because I'm old. And if we uh, if we continue doing this for long enough, when we get into the glory days of The Simpsons, we have such, uh, such monoliths as everything I do, I do for you. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. Yep. I will always love you. Uh, and love is all around. Uh, a lot of stuff about love. Yes. That stayed at number one for... Oh, and also Bohemian Rhapsody. That stayed at number one for absolutely ages. Well, you, well, you know what I think about Queen, so... Okay. So, uh, this is the least of our worries. So, what was number two? Well, it was actually Beats International, which was number three last week. And at number three is Technotronic, which was number two the week before. Which oh, we yeah. talked about the entire top three. That's bizarre. So, where do you go from there? Well, 
To be honest, I've used a little bit of researcher's privilege here to go for the highest ranked song that I actually like in the charts that week. <laughs> At number six, up from number 17 the week before, Depeche Mode with Enjoy the Silence. Oh, I love that song. I sing that to my daughter. That is an excellent song. I can't wait to put that one on our uh, Twitter this week. Yeah. Finally, one I can properly get behind. Although Beats International isn't bad, but uh, anyway, I digress. Uh, This was right in the middle of their transformation from fey keyboard popsters to Atlantic straddling rock monsters. Yeah. It was their first top ten single in the UK since Master and Servant in 1984, which is definitely not something I realised at the time, Mm -hmm. uh, and won Best British Single at the 1991 Brit Awards, when that still meant at least something. Mm, mm. And, and, also, and also songs could climb the charts, yes. as well as go down them, which is, like, unheard of these days. I hadn't even caught on to that, but you're quite yeah. right, yeah. Climbing the charts is not a thing that a song tends to do these days. The only significant faller and climber I remember from my childhood was when Mr Blobby was at number one in, I think, 1993. And, he got, and it got knocked off by... Take that, I think, or, or or one boy band, and it then went back up to number one for Christmas. Yeah, and it was, you know, a, 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 an extraordinary victory for the pink and yellow one. Absolutely. And if we have any non-British listeners who are wondering who Mr. Blobby is and why he was at the top of the charts, just don't look into it. Oh, just, just don't do it. There's there's one thing you should look up, which if you Google Jack Whitehall, Mr. Blobby, you'll find a clip from some Channel Four comedy show where they bring on Mr. Blobby and Jack Whitehall is terrified of him. And I can't blame him because uh, this is something that really annoys me about Mr. Blobby and it really shouldn't. And this is one hell of a tangent. But when Mr. Blobby started off, he's, he, he was used for like gotchas as like a practical joke. But as time went on, he just became manic. As soon as you saw him, he'd scream and he'd just run in and trash the place. And it was just an utter destruction of what Mr. Blobby was supposed to stand for. <laughs> so, that, so that's my Mr. Blobby rant out of the way. I've had um. that in me for years. And I thought, where on earth can I talk about Mr. Blobby? And it just what, just went there. Not that this podcast is uh, therapy for most of us, uh, for, uh, for both of us, but you know. Okay, so... Uh, Simpsons. Uh, yes, after the, after the Blobby tangent... Um, so, the uh, chalkboard gag this time was, uh, I will not draw naked ladies in class. And I can't help but think this would have been more appropriate in Homer's Night Out in a few episodes' time. Yeah. Uh, the couch gag, and we've, we've discussed this briefly before, no gag. They just sit down and nothing happens. Yes. So I had opined before that this would have made more sense as the couch gag for Bart Genius being the first mm. the first episode with a couch gag. So everybody comes and sits on the sofa, you don't think anything's ever going to happen in the opening titles, and then for the next week, the, yeah. the anarchy begins. Yeah, yeah. We disagree on this. We may have to come to blows. I think it works if it is part of a, a, a long-running joke where you're expecting something to happen and nothing does, and that's a joke. Okay. I Excellent. think that works right. better. Well, we'll just have to agree to... Disagree on that one. I yeah, think. that's fine. It's it's fine to 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 agree to disagree on things like that. Excellent. That's fine. But just not Mr. Blobby. Uh, well, <laughs> we'll see. So, what happens in the episode? Well, the Flanderers seem to be materially ahead of the Simpsons in every conceivable sense, including with their new RV, which Ned happily runs Homer through the features of, including its own satellite dish. With Ned having revealed that he bought it on credit. Homer sees an opportunity to draw level. At Bob's RV roundup, Bob, no relation, long story, sees Homer coming, 
and having shown him the ultimate behemoth, a two-story RV with not only its own satellite dish, but also its own satellite, the Vanstar <laughs> 1, launched last February, and four deep fryers, one for each part of the chicken, he then discovers that Homer's credit is awful. But seeing a chance to monetize a man's desperation, he sells him a tiny, heavily damaged rust bucket, much to his family's disgust. After gloating to Flanders, who, to be fair, does his best impersonation of an impressed person, they very slowly go off into the woods, and then into a lake, then back into the woods, before coming to rest on the edge of a cliff. The family escape, and the RV crashes and burns. Experienced woodsman Homer tries to keep everyone's spirits up by building a ramshackle shelter and hunting for food, though an echoing canyon betrays his fears that he's murdered them all. He takes Bart and Maggie to find help, whilst Marge and Lisa stay at and immediately massively improve the shelter. Unfortunately, Homer mistakes Maggie's pacifier for a rattlesnake, panics and runs with Bart into the woods and goes straight off a cliff, whilst Maggie goes into a sea plot and is temporarily raised by bears. Mm. Not much to report there, but it is cute. Yeah. Homer and Bart survive sans clothes, doing notably worse than Marge and Lisa, and Homer is photographed with a mouthful of bees and covered in mud, which the local news reports as the return of Bigfoot, leading to a $5,000 reward for his capture and a media frenzy, which is only amplified when Marge reveals she is married to Bigfoot. Homer and Bart find Maggie and the bears, and that part of the family is reunited, only to wander straight into the media circus, where he is tranquilized and captured. And scientists... And Dr. Marvin Monroe, who has clearly forgotten his recent former patient, or is at least taking a measure of revenge, <laughs> decide that he is either a below-average human being or a brilliant beast. Homer despairs, but Marge is happy to be back home with her brilliant beast. So, yeah, I the main thing that I have to say about this is that it was actually the first episode of The Simpsons that I ever saw. Oh, really? Yeah, so I had it on VHS, and for some reason the, the running order was this, and then Bart Genius. So two, two episodes on the VHS, which probably cost £15 mm. to the family member that bought it for me for Christmas 1991. Wow. So it was 22 months after it was originally aired um, in the US, and it had already been on Sky, probably for a fair while. People were raving about The Simpsons. My expectations were quite high, and probably too high. I was, uh, I was disappointed. Yeah, I'm I was surprised. disappointed. Although... Watching back now, I do think it's one of the better episodes in season one. There's a fair few mm. chuckles in there. Um, I did like the rabbit being flung into the distance by Homer's trap. <clears throat> yeah, that, that, that's my absolute favourite bit. Yeah. Because The Simpsons has its quite dark, surreal moments. And it uh, and it's not in the same calibre as some of the others, but it's definitely one of them. It's like <laughs> rabbit just flung off and <laughs> into the far distance and them going, oh, well, never mind. Let's do something else. <laughs> you know, showing no concern for the rabbit whatsoever. Well, having said that, they were going to eat it. So, uh... I also like the uh, the kind of the moral panic about Bigfoot and the the headlines that you see on the papers, which I can't mm. remember whether they were spinning papers coming out of the the, the screen, which would later uh, be a Simpsons meme. Mm. I can't remember whether they spin or, or stay stay static. It's probably not the most important point of this. <laughs> but the um, the headlines on them uh, are: I married Bigfoot. Bigfoot's wife pleads, call him Homer. And my particular favourite, the Bigfoot diet, pork chops are plenty. Yeah. Which I believe is uh, accompanied by a photo of Homer as Bigfoot in a chef's hat. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, they all seem to be from the same newspaper. 
which is odd when you consider how long it took to print an edition of a newspaper in those days, <laughs> and that it all seems to come from the same interview that Marge is giving to the yeah. television uh, at the time. Um, we've also got a temporary wrong Lisa again. Oh, is it? Yeah, she joins in with the uh, Name That Odour game on the trip. But separated from Bart and paired with Marge later, she's back to her thoughtful self. So they only got it wrong for a tiny bit of the episode by the looks of it. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, that's excusable. Yeah. We get a, uh, a Homer beast or monkey reference here. So there's there seems to me to be a lot of times in early series where he's compared to apes, or in this case, Bigfoot. We've already had mm. one with Quidjibo. Yeah. Um, they die out eventually, and it doesn't take too long, to be honest. Um, we get After we get King Homer in Treehouse of Horror 3, which is a, a literal... Um, satire of King Kong, but with Homer in the in the lead role, they're, they're pretty much gone after that. But it, I do feel like that was a feature of early episodes. Okay. So, who was the writer for this episode? It was bloody John Schwartzwelder again. Oh. So I can't recycle my ten minutes of material that I have about him. Yeah, but I, I I still love the idea that that he doesn't exist, and that and that he's a and that he's a conspiracy. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. Just because no one's ever seen him, apart from a you know select few Simpsons people, I suppose. We we could just start quoting that as fact. It wouldn't be very sceptic, but you know, it's... it wouldn't. It wouldn't. But it'd be fun. Yeah. Okay. We will think on this. Yeah. There is a character debut of of sorts. Albert Brooks. Sorry, I mean Bob from Bob's RV Roundup. Albert Brooks goes on to be subtly one of the most celebrated voices in The Simpsons. Here is a list of the characters that Albert Brooks plays. Hank Scorpio, Brad Goodman, Russ Cargill. Now, you may not recognise the name, but he's the villain in The Simpsons movie. Oh, yes. Uh, the, the head of the Environmental Protection Agency. Yes, yes. yes. Which was originally going to be Hank Scorpio. So I think that's why Albert Brooks got nod. I see, I see. Um... There's also a character called Tab Spangler. <laughs> uh, my research wasn't particularly good this week, so I, I don't know where <laughs> that comes from. Uh, and a character I couldn't quite nail down in season 26, episode 21, Bull E. Whoops. He's credited as A. Brooks in this one, allegedly as he wasn't certain he wanted his name on a cartoon. Well, he's done quite well for him since. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, the character of Bob, a very shrewd salesman, and he knows he can send Homer home with something. He just needs to chip away at his self-esteem first. <laughs> he works at, but doesn't own, Bob's RV Roundup. Long story, as alluded to earlier. And reappears in Season 16, Episode 13, Mobile Homer. Which is an episode about Homer buying an RV. It sounds really familiar, but I can't put my finger on it. It's, yeah. it's like I've heard that plot somewhere before. But Yeah. So. It's an odd one. We'll have more to say about other uh, Albert Brooks characters soon enough. Cool. So uh, we'll come back to him at some stage. I've got a couple of did you knows, but I'll warn you now they're not very good. Oh, well, let's see them anyway. Would you like to hear them? With right, that proviso. Let's, let's go for it. So uh, the episode was nominated for an Emmy Award in 1990 in the category of Outstanding Sound Mixing for a Comedy Series or a Special. Now I don't know about you, but when I when I first watched it, I was really struck by the sound mixing. It's you know easily the strongest uh, element of this episode. That is such a niche award. Yeah, best shoelaces worn by a second cameraman. 
the the punchline to this is that I can't, can't find out whether it won or not, but as far as I can tell, it didn't. So uh, that's fantastic. Well, they'd be shouting about it everywhere if they'd run if they won that award. Absolutely, yeah, we'd still be celebrating it to this day. Um, and, and and you can tell how stretched I was for Did You Knows this week because uh, we've got Burger King did a set of toys themed after the family's costumes in this episode, along with cardboard nature themed layouts and a set of three hard plastic cups. Wow. That what? is weird. What have I been reduced to, Tom? Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, right, we better get the Falklands on the go then, because oh, this, okay. this is a bust. So, uh... <laughs> well, yeah, because I do not have a huge amount to say about this episode, especially not compared to last week's, because it's, it's just a bit... We've used the expression before, a bit meh. There's not a huge amount, there's not a huge amount to say about it. I do, I do like the... Uh, representation of sort of late 80s early 90s consumerism which is you've got to keep up with the joneses you've got to buy the latest big thing if you know if your neighbors bought something big you've got you've got to get the same thing but bigger yep i like that that was a actually there is something to be said for this being the first the first episode to my knowledge where flanders is flanderish i guess it's a it's a recurring theme before his sort of these days, he's known more for his uh, Christian element. But previously, he was he was the Joneses. He was the neighbour mm. that Homer was always trying to keep up with. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I don't know if his consumerism would be completely consistent with his Christian ethos from the later shows. But uh, no, he's not averse to buying nice things for his family, mm. I, I think we'll say. He's definitely not the Flanders who would later... Uh, Consider insurance a form of gambling, though, if he's (laughs) he's buying stuff on credit. Ooh, yeah, that's a good point. Hmm. That's very interesting. Come to think of it, and I I probably shouldn't just announce this on an episode of the podcast, I I probably messed up a bit by just including people like Flanders, Barney, etc., etc., in in just a a host of debuts in uh, (laughs) Simpsons Roasting on an Open Fire. I suppose we, we, so. we will come back and touch on them all at some stage. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because they develop as time goes on, especially Flanders. Absolutely. Well, it's like the uh, the wrong Ralph Wiggum last week. Yeah. In some ways, it doesn't seem worth talking about the characters until they're fully developed. That's yeah, my excuse, anyway. Okay, okay, fair enough. Uh, so, yeah, that's that. Uh, what's it called? Call of the Simpsons. Call of the Simpsons. Call of the Simpsons. Yes. So that's done. So now on to... My bit. So I'm going to be talking about the restoration of diplomatic relations between the UK and Argentina, which happened on the 16th of February, just two days before Call of the Simpsons was first aired. Now, why did they need restoring, I hear you ask? Well, there was the small matter of the 1982 Falklands War. And at this point, I'll admit that I'm bending the rules of the show a bit, but this is my bit, so meh. Whatever. Now, it may seem easy to dismiss the Falklands War as a minor scrap over a few rocks, penguins and sheep in the Atlantic Ocean. But there's so much more wider context than that. And for me, it's absolutely fascinating. So off we go. First, a bit about the Falkland Islands. They are remote, about as remote as you can get. They're 300 miles from the nearest continental landmass, which is Patagonia in Argentina, so that's roughly the equivalent of the distance between London and Dublin. So you're talking, you know, a long way. The current population of the islands is about 3,000 people. So, you know, small. I mean, the village I grew up in, Norfolk, has got a larger population than that. So onto the history of the islands. 
For a bunch of rocks in the Atlantic, their history is surprisingly checkered. It's been occupied by Britain, France and Spain. The French established Port Louis in 1764, and in 1766, the British established a settlement called Port Edgemont. I assume that's how that's pronounced. France surrendered Port Louis to Spain in 1766, and in 1770, the Spanish discovered Port Edgemont and captured it. Historians, I love this, historians argue about whether the two settlements knew of each other's existence. My God. Which would, which would be kind of crazy nowadays. That would be like living in Liverpool and not knowing that Blackpool exists. Yeah, it's just, just a total lack of curiosity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Shall we go to this bit of the island? Nah. So the Spanish captured Port Edgemont. It ne- nearly led, led to war, but following a treaty, Port Edgemont was returned to the UK. Economic pressure on the British Empire meant that the UK left Port Edgemont in 1774, and they left a plaque claiming the islands for King George III. So that's so that's the British claim. It goes back, oh yeah, you know, beyond seventeen seventy four. And when you leave a plaque, that's forever. Exactly, exactly. Uh, do it for King George the <laughs> Third. By eighteen eleven, both the British and Spanish had left, leaving the islands with no governance at all, and very few people, if any. An attempt was made by the United Provinces of the Rio del Plata in eighteen twenty three to resettle the islands when they gave the merchant Louis Verne the right to settle there. Uh, the United Provinces were sort of the forerunner to Argentina. Very, very complicated history of South America, but that's a rough approximation anyway. This settlement went awry in eighteen thirty one when after a dispute over seal hunting and fishing rights, the USS Lexington turned up to find that a bunch of US fishing vessels had been seized, and the Lexington responded by sacking the colony, as was the style at the time. (laughs) Following that, another United Provinces ship was sent there to establish a penal colony, but after landing, the crew mutinied and killed the captain. So it's, it's all going well so far. Which was also the style of the time. Yes, definitely. In 1833 possibly the most important date so far, the British sent over a task force to take back control of the islands. The United Provinces were against this, but they were massively outnumbered, so they left under protest. And they've had a claim to the islands ever since, essentially. After finishing their mission, the British force left the islands, leaving them with no formal government. So the deputy to Louis Verne, a guy called Matthew Brisbane, who was from Scotland, returned to the islands to restore the fishing business. And then the story takes another twist. There was a disagreement between Brisbane and some gauchos. The gauchos, led by Antonio Riviero, murdered Brisbane and several others. The remaining survivors hid in a cave until the British returned to restore order. So it's, you know, for a few rocks in the Atlantic, there's a hell of a lot of murder and war and killing. It's, It's amazing. So in 1840, the Falklands officially became a UK crown colony and a bunch of settlers arrived from Scotland to properly establish a settlement. And many Falkland Islanders are descended from those settlers. The Falklands economy took off in 1851 when the Falkland Islands Company bought out the remaining ventures of Louis Verne and introduced Cheviot sheep. So that's when it really um, uh, became shall we say, functional as, as a settlement, because not only are there people there now, there's also a bit of an economy. Yeah. In fact, sheep are so important that a good chunk of the Falkland Islands flag is taking up 
by a sheep. I was going to ask you about the flag yes. because I, I have a, a vision that I may be tweeting that at some stage over the weekend. Yeah, it, it's 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 a blue ensign with the coat of arms of the Falklands on it, and about half of that coat of arms is taken up by sheep. Wow, I wonder if there's any other flag that has more of a sheep to flag ratio. And to Ooh. be honest, I doubt it. Oh, I'm trying to think of some. Anyway, that's for another time. <laughs> Um, there was also a bit of a ship repair trade going on then, but that more or less closed down in 1914. Now, can can you think why? Yes. Even I, as the control hamster, know that that was the start of World War One. It was, but something else happened then. Something uh, very pertaining to the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean that we've talked about on a previous show. Oh, for heaven's sake. So the one time it seems obvious, I can't even get it right. <laughs> go, go ahead, Tom, put me out of my misery. The Panama Canal opened. Oh! So, and we were just talking about flags as well. Oh, we were. I we should, were. should have known that. Yeah, so, so before, ships were going all the way around South America, and they could, if they wanted to, stop off at the Falkland Islands for repairs. But when the Panama Canal opened, they didn't go that way anymore. So that was more or less it for uh, ship repairing on the Falklands. So the Falklands saw a bit of action in the World Wars, but things really hotted up with the sovereignty disputes between the UK and Argentina in the 60s and 70s, culminating with Argentina invading the Falklands on April the 2nd, 1982. So before I get into talking about the Falklands War itself, just want to pause for a moment and consider who's in power on the two sides. In the UK, Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister. Boo. <laughs> Her Conservative Party came to power in the 1979 general election. The UK was just emerging from the winter of discontent, and the country was in a pretty bad shape. Now, in another example of having to declare my biases, I need to say this. I hate Margaret Thatcher. I hold her responsible for the keeping up with the Joneses, 1749% APR variable, buy now, pay later, sell your own grandmother for an Amazon Prime subscription, world that we live in today. Her treatment of, the, of uh, the miners in the 80s was terrible, and her response to the Hillsborough disaster of 1989 was abysmal. Gareth, would you like to balance my views at all? Maybe say something good about Thatcher? No. Good. No, I think I'll just, I think I'll just leave you to it, to be honest. Yeah. Um, when, you, when you get to a position where you have to think that kind of John Major took over the Conservative government and did a better job... In his mm. very, very short time in charge. Then you, you're not dealing with a, a leader who is well-loved. No. It's very odd to be talking about possibly the least popular leader in British history. And also thinking that she got in three times. Well, the thing is, she really divides people. Basically, if you weren't, like, rich, middle-class, yuppie type in the 80s, you know, if you weren't a stockbroker or something, then you were completely disposable and essentially what she did was 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 rip the soul out of the country basically you know privatized as much stuff as she could sold it all off not not, not a fun time at all although it did although the 80s you did have a bit of counterculture with with things like the young ones and ben elton back before he sold out and you don't get that today for those 2.3 seconds before he sold out yes yeah. Uh, yeah that and Okay, this is the biggest digression we've taken thus far. And let's let's face it, we were talking about Mr. Blobby earlier. <laughs> but I am appalled by the lack of counterculture 
Yeah. In this time. Yes, we does. have a right-wing government that most people, particularly sort of artists, disagree with. Yeah. We have a right-wing government in America that everyone disagrees with. Yeah. Um and there's nothing coming out. Even in the in the days of Bush, you had Green Day, you had Bobby Conn, you had kind of notable British artists coming out and doing anti anti Bush stuff. Anti Trump, really there's just that one Eminem song. Um, I don't even know that. Yeah, it's just... I, I, I don't know. I feel like people could be doing better. And at this stage, I have to mention one of my favourite bands that nobody else really seems to like, Smash, with their 1994 uh, non-hit, I Want to Kill Somebody, which is <laughs> a, about literally murdering the Tory government of the time. Nice. I don't see anybody coming out with that kind of thing no. at the moment. No, no, there's nothing. And in these days... There's no excuse because you've got social media. So if you're just a guy with a guitar and you string together some anti-establishment song, you stick it on YouTube, it should be popular. And just, just, just where is it? Where's our generation's punk rock? Well, <sighs> having said that, I I have a theory, um, which is that social media is making people think they can portray their views without doing as much. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to write a song. You don't have to get a gig and go and tell people, you know, 10 people in a room at a time what you think is wrong with stuff. You can stick it on Facebook and people will give it a thumbs up. That's true. Or you can thumbs up someone else who's saying the same thing as you. That's true. That's true. Instant instant gratification from your tribe. Very yeah. true. Very true. So, so I think people are still... They're still putting their anger across, but they're doing it in a way that just isn't having an effect. Yeah. Or it isn't having the desired effect. And we are so far off topic at this stage. We are. I really we really must apologise. But it's, uh, <laughs> I think it's been, once again, a very therapeutic talk for the It team. has. It has. Because I get almost furious about the lack of counterculture today. And it's not just the lack of counterculture in the UK. There's no counterculture in the States either. And I've no idea why. Or, or maybe I'm just not aware of it. Maybe I'm just not looking hard enough. It is true. It's one of, one of the things that I um, I worry about is, is the new punk rock happening? And I'm just not yeah. down with the kids enough yeah. to realise what it is. I haven't been to a gig for ages. I'm old. I'm old. I, 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 I think I'm going slightly deaf. I, 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 I'm much more likely to say, you kids get off my lawn, if I had a lawn. <laughs> Um, yeah, so so I'm probably missing it all because I'm old. So anyway, no matter how bad it was in the UK, even now or in Thatcher's time, it was worse in Argentina. Oh, nice segue. Yeah. Yeah. So who was in charge in Argentina? Well, in 1976, a military coup overthrew the government in what became euphemistically known as the National Reorganisation Process. In December 1981, one General Leopoldo Galtieri became head of the army and therefore the government. Galtieri was deeply unpopular. Thousands of Argentinians had been tortured and or disappeared by the regime in what was known as the Dirty War. The economy was in trouble and people regularly took to the streets to protest against military rule. The invasion of the Falklands changed that. For a long time, the Falklands, or Islas Malvinas as Argentina would like them to be known. I always think of the Dr. Hibbert line, hillbillies prefer to be called sons of the soil, but it ain't going to happen <laughs> when I hear the Falklands call them, Al- called them Alvinas. So these islands were seen as part of Argentina by Argentina, and of course they still are, and the fact that they were occupied by the UK for so long was seen as a source of national humiliation. 
With the Falklands in the hands of the Argentinian military, the same people who were protesting against the government the day before suddenly came out in support of the government. It's like, down with Galtieri, we've got the Falklands back, way up with Galtieri. So it like gave them a real popularity boost. The UK reaction was swift and not what Galtieri was expecting. He thought that the UK was weak, and face it, the UK had been weak since the end of the Second World War. We were, you know, financially screwed. So he thought that the UK was not in an economic position to take the islands back by force. However, following heated discussions in Parliament and the resignation of the UK Foreign Secretary Lord Carrington, Margaret Thatcher announced that a task force would be sent to the Falklands to drive out the Argentine forces. The task force would take three weeks to get there. In the meantime, the US tried to find a peaceful solution. One of the things I find fascinating about the Falklands is that it seems to be out of place for most wars at the time. So the early 80s was still in Cold War territory, and most wars had at least some sort of East versus West, capitalist versus communist background to them. In the case of the Falklands War, both belligerents were on the side of the USA. The UK had a long-held special relationship with the States, and Reagan and Thatcher famously got on like a house on fire. Argentina, in turn, supported the Contra rebels in Nicaragua and was very much in favour with the states. I mean, that's how the states was back then. It was, they didn't care if the brutal military regime was killing thousands of its own people. As long as they opposed communism, they were cool. The chances of a peaceful settlement were slim to none. Argentina and the UK both saw the Falklands as rightfully theirs, so there wasn't anything to discuss. While all this was going on, the Falkland Islanders lived under occupation. Although they were instructed to carry on as normal, they couldn't go anywhere without the permission of the Argentine army. Added to that, the Argentines laid about 20,000 mines around the islands. So after three weeks, the British task force reached the Falklands. At first, the odds were stacked against them. They were thousands of miles from home, so resupply would have been very difficult, if not impossible. The Falklands were in range of the Argentinian mainland, so Argentina could launch air attacks from there, whereas the UK had to make use of its two aircraft carriers, the HMS Invincible and HMS Hermes. Argentina had one weapon that was particularly fearsome, the Exocet missile. They only had a few of them, but each missile weighed half a tonne and was capable of locking onto its closest target. An Exocet used effectively could take out a warship, including the carriers, no question. Didn't Britain eventually get the Exocet missile? Yeah, I think so. I think the Exocets were made by the French. Oh, they were definitely French, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, well, the British had plenty of military hardware, but but the reason why they feared an Exocet attack it, it was the Argentinians, the pilots, they didn't even have to aim. It was mm. just like, fire the missile in roughly the direction of a ship, and if it locks onto it, it'll hit. Yeah. Basically. So... The British plan to take back the Falklands was fairly simple. First, they would establish air superiority. Then they would establish a beachhead in a more lightly defended part of the islands. Then they would land several helicopters, and these helicopters would take the marines into battle. It did not go exactly to plan. Although they had a lot of success against the Argentine Air Force, especially with the Sea Harrier, they did not establish air superiority as they would have liked. British and Argentinian ships engaged each other at sea. The most famous and biggest loss was the sinking of the General Belgrano by the submarine HMS Conqueror. Over 300 crew members of the Belgrano died and 700 crew members were rescued. 
was very controversial at the time with Thatcher being grilled about it in a live TV phone-in. The controversy was that there was an exclusion zone around the islands and that the Belgrano was sailing away. That was the view at the time. That's been challenged by more recent history. Also, the Belgrano was the Argentine Navy's flagship. So losing it was like, yeah, a big loss. Shortly after this came the sinking of the destroyer HMS Sheffield. It was hit amidships by an Exocet missile, leading to the loss of 20 lives. On the 21st of May, the British landed during the night at the beaches around San Carlos Water in the northwest of East Falkland. Around 4,000 personnel established a secure beachhead, which became known as Bomb Alley because it was repeatedly the target of the Argentine Air Force. Yeah, because they didn't have air superiority, so that was always a danger. Following the landings, the Argentines managed to sink several British ships, including the MV Atlantic Conveyor, which was carrying several helicopters. So it was like, oh no, that's a logistical nightmare. How are we going to move thousands of troops without helicopters? So without the helicopters, the British Marines had to resort to walking to their targets on foot, or yomping, as they call it. Approximately 500 men of two para went south, while the rest of the force went east, towards Stanley. Two para attacked Goose Green, a strategically important isthmus that controlled access to the south of East Falkland. The battle lasted all night and into the following day. 14 British and 47 Argentine soldiers were killed, and over 900 Argentine troops were taken prisoner. But that would have been a big morale boost. That was the idea. We get control of this strategic settlement. And that will give us an advantage. See, I had a feeling it would be a successful British endeavour, simply because Goose Green is spoken about still to these days. It in, is. In glowing terms as a, as a military victory. Although I, I really only am aware of it from uh, Edward Hitler in Bottom, uh, <laughs> claiming he was a veteran of the conflict. That's and being right. Being beaten up by a veteran of the conflict. Yeah, he was played by Robert Llewellyn, I seem to he remember. He was, yes, crying himself. Yeah. With a, with a false leg. Yeah. That was a bizarre episode. But then again, it was bottom, so yes. that's kind of its job. <laughs> so, um, uh, oh, and they were massively outnumbered as well, like, like, like two to one, I think. So, so the British, they go south, they take Goose Green. The rest of the forces marched east towards the capital, Stanley. During this time, they were bogged down in fighting with Argentine patrols, who were determined to stop them around Mount Kent, which is just outside Stanley. By June 1st, British reinforcements had arrived. Unfortunately for them, there was a great deal of confusion about what to do when they got there. They were meant to land at a place called Port Pleasant, south of Stanley, under cover of darkness. Sounds pleasant. Mm. Unfortunately, it wasn't. Due to a series of delays, the ships Sir Galahad and Sir Tristram were still there during the day, completely exposed, and they were attacked by the Argentine Air Force, the British suffered 48 killed, although Galtieri was told it was over 900. And it led to some of the more memorable footage of the war. So, you know, British warships up in flames, plumes of black smoke, people being winched off, that sort of thing. And, um, you know, that, that really hit home that the war was real to the people watching it back in the UK. On the night of June 11th, the attack on Stanley began. After a series of battles... The British took control of key positions around Stanley. And on the night of June the 13th, the British took Mount Tumbledown, 
the last natural defence before you get to Stanley. With this taken, the Argentines had little defence left. The next day, a ceasefire was declared and the Argentine army surrendered, bringing the war to a close. The repercussions in Argentina were almost immediate. Just three days later, Galtieri was removed from power and he was eventually tried and sentenced to 12 years imprisonment for crimes committed during the Dirty War and the Falklands War. Back in the UK, the war did wonders for Thatcher. The Tories won the 1983 election with a majority of nearly 200 MPs. But it also kind of put the UK back on the map. So following the Second World War and the end of the British Empire, the UK was seen as a bit of a spent power that didn't do anything without the say-so of the USA. But with the Falklands, they'd taken on a large military power on the other side of the world, on their own, and won. So everyone went, well, hey, Britain's back. Wow, the, you know, took on the might of Argentina. Wow. Was it, was it back in pog form? Or? <laughs> oh, I don't think so. Anyway, as the years went by, Argentina still laid claim to the Falklands, but of course, it's powerless to do anything about it. The UK and Argentina restored diplomatic relations on the 16th of February 1990, but not that much has changed to this day. In 2013, the islanders held a referendum on whether they wanted to remain a British overseas territory. Just three people voted no. <laughs> I mean, I mean, we're mired right now in, in July 2018 in a complete mess of a very close referendum. But that's what you call a decisive referendum when everyone but three people vote the same way. What happened to those three people? Oh, secret ballot. Secret ballot. It's, it's, <laughs> I think a lot of the other islanders have gone, if I ever find out who that was, <laughs> why yada, that sort of thing. So it doesn't look like Argentina are going to give up their claims to the Falklands anytime soon, but for the foreseeable future, they will be firmly and democratically British. Well, we might say that the Falklands wasn't a, a massive conflict in sort of global terms. But it was, of course, uh, important and groundbreaking enough for Krusty the Clown to <laughs> interrupt uh, one of his shows in 1982 to announce the, uh, the beginning of the war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, 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 that's the only appearance of the Falklands and the Simpsons that I can think of. I fi- what was it? Krusty says that he's going to put on a rerun because no one will tell the difference. Yes, yes. It's uh, the episode Burns' is Air, oh, it's where he's, uh, he's delivering a pizza ah, yes, and he's yes. just stuck on a, a rerun. Uh, and it happens to be that particular one. Yeah. <laughs> Argentina then uh, features in The Simpsons, at least briefly, uh, in Bart versus Australia, where he's ringing the Southern Hemisphere to find out about the Coriolis effect, which I think is the... Uh, yeah. I think this is the second episode in a row where we've mentioned Bart versus Australia. Well, it's very good, and it's, and it's, and it's a very, very good little sequence. It's over in about five seconds, but it's... Mm. It's something that the Simpsons these days wouldn't really do because he calls up Argentina and Hitler answers. Yes. Or at least someone who looks and sounds a lot like Hitler. You know, which is, you know, poking fun at the, at the fact that a lot of Nazis fled to Argentina. Yes. Following yes. the end of the Second World War. Yeah. yeah. There was a rumour that Hitler was amongst them, but uh, I think we can be relatively certain that he died in 1945. Uh, we can, we can. Oh, there's so many conspiracies about Hitler. Uh, best not get started on them. Yeah. So, some people say he went to the Antarctic. Some people say he went to the moon. One of the things I always, uh, you know, think about, and I, I am, ge- generally speaking, quite left wing. 
but I do clash with my left wing friends on this because I personally think that the action that Thatcher took to retake the Falklands, it was the right thing to do because it was a sovereign British territory and, and everyone who lived on the Falklands at the time was British. If it was the case where you had like a minority British population, like 10 or 20% of the people who lived there were British and everyone else was Argentinian, then fair enough, you've got a bit of a case. The way I see it, it would be like the Argentine Navy rocking up at Mull, you know, a, a, a Scottish island, which has got a similar population to that, the Falklands, and just going, oh, right, well, you know, we're having this now. And would you then go, well, it's only 2,000 people, it's just a rock in the sea, what does it matter? No, you wouldn't, you wouldn't. You'd be, uh, you'd be rightly furious, I would have thought. True enough, true enough. So is the headline here, Tom Williamson says Thatcher was okay? A... Uh, Tom Williamson says Thatcher was right to do what she did over the Falklands, but not much else. Excellent. Is what I'd say. One thing I've thought about is, would it be fun to go and have a holiday in the Falklands? And I actually researched how much it would cost to get there. And you can do this trip... I think maybe once or twice a month. It's free stops. It involves going to Chile and it costs over £2,000. Okay, so financially, not worth it. But for the experience? Well, I'd love to go there just because it sounds really weird. Because it's, you know, thousands of miles away from mainland Britain. But But it's a little bit of Britain on a few rocks in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Sounds amazing. Um, I, I do. Know, I do know someone who's been there, and he's one of these annoyingly interesting people. Who every time you check his Facebook profile, he's doing something, you know, weird and fun. So we went to Uruguay, went to Montevideo, and he then got a yacht. Um, and when I say yacht, I mean like like a small yacht with a crew, not one of those big Playboy yachts that millionaires have. And as part of the crew, he sailed over to the Falklands. And then to get back home, he flew with the RAF and got back into uh, Bryce Norton. Because apparently you can do that with some RAF things. You can get a civilian ticket and you've just got your little civilian seat and you're there with all the, <laughs> all the army personnel. And you go to baggage reclaim and your luggage comes round and uh, so do the soldiers' guns. Sounds bizarre. I would never even have thought that was a thing to seek it out in the first place. (laughs) Apparently it is. Apparently Mm. it is. Wow. Yeah. So there we are. That's my that's my little take on the on the Falklands. I I bet people are gonna disagree with me. Okay. And if you want to disagree with Tom, uh, then uh, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore because we can't. Or you can email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org. Yep, there we are. There we are. And please keep the eels coming as well. I know we've had at least one. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thanks to Tim Worthington for the eel. Excellent. Okay, well, we'll see you in a couple of weeks' time for the next episode. And uh, until then, goodbye. Yep, cheers, everyone. Bye.